Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. How random is random and what does it mean for the rest of our society? When you see a large swarm of data and then you feed it to a machine, that's called machine learning and we basically use that to generate new algorithms and new apps. What is the underlying data underneath it and is it any good? Plus, how do we measure randomness and does your ability to be random change over time? Randomness plays a really big part in our everyday lives. Everything from our credit card transactions or even just the random game you play on your phone to your shuffle on your music player all employs some degree of randomness. And that's just things we see in everyday life. But a whole bunch of statistical science, medical trials, and even more fundamental things, like operating of large infrastructure systems, rely on some element of random data. But the problem with randomness is that it's really, at its core, not very random at all. That is to say that we as humans are actually pretty poor at making up randomness. And even when we turn to computers, we don't really get randomness, we get what is known as pseudo-random number generators which are, by using some type of complicated computer algorithm, we can come up with what appears to be a random sequence of digits. And this is what your computer is doing all the time for things like shuffle and a whole bunch of other functions. But the problem is, depending on the way it works, it can either use a very complex little algorithm to generate it, or it has some type of random seed, uh, maybe a 32-bit string of numbers, that is unique each time it generates it and builds a random pattern based off that. However, all of these different methods aren't really random. Some of them are more random than others, and others can be easily worked backwards. So if you are trying to encrypt your data, let's say for the purposes of a credit card transaction, well, that level of randomness isn't really sufficient because it can be reverse engineered and figured out. It will take some time, but we can get there. Now, obviously, There are good ways to generate random data, such as uh, things like radioactive decay, thermal noise, shot noise and avalanche noise from Zerner diodes, uh, clock drift. All these physical measures, even background radio and microwave radiation levels can help produce random data. And this is really, really useful, but actually really difficult. So most of the randomness you'll encounter in your life is actually pseudo-random and not really random at all. There's a couple of different tests for randomness that we use to actually help describe and analyze it, and a lot of complicated number theory goes into this. And one of the most obvious ones is actually called the Kolmogorov complexity level, which is if it can be described, uh, basically, if you see a long series of digits and numbers and you could say some type of pattern that you could use to describe it, then that's less random than something without any clear, obvious descriptive mechanism. And there's a little bit of maths to go back that up. And all these types of different tests actually are used by people, researchers, and those actually using things that rely critically on randomness to actually assess which things are random and which things aren't. For example, for medical trials, NIST actually has a standard for what should and should not count as randomness. But all this random talk is not just for a random purpose in this instance.
One of the interesting ways to actually generate random data is to throw it to humans, because as a horde collective, uh, our responses are very, very different. Now, each individual human may have a general pattern that they like to use, uh, some type of base algorithm, whether or not they're aware of it or not. But uh, as a collective, uh, we are able to produce different, very, very different levels of data when asked maybe to randomly fill out a survey or pick some numbers. In a recent study published in the journal PLOS Computational Biology, led by a team of researchers under the instruction of Nicholas Garvitt and his colleagues at the Algorithmic Nature Group, which is an L.A. Bohr's National and Digital Sciences Group in Paris, uh, basically assessed a whole group of people, over 3,000 actually, 3,400, from ages of 4 to 91 years old. And by getting each of these participants to perform a series of random online tasks, they actually managed to assess their ability to behave randomly and get an idea of what people do when they're trying to be random. And as we discussed before, it's actually really, really difficult. Even when doing something like picking a number randomly, moving your keyboard in an odd way, tossing a coin, there's all these kind of inherent biases measurement biases or process biases that we actually put into this process. So to actually get something to be random, it's even difficult just for us humans. Now, the fundamental test of this study was to see what sort of patterns influence people's randomness and what can we learn from that. Previous studies have shown that, well, when people age, their ability to come up with a new and random pattern sort of decreases over time. But we wasn't really clear how this behavior evolved over time. Uh, was there some way we could measure what randomness works best with people? So these participants, over 3,400 from ages 4 to 91 years old, were given a whole series of tasks to do. Some of these include listing a hypothetical series of 12 coin flips. So making a list of these, what would be the 12 series of coin flips, heads or tails, tails, heads, heads, tails, tails, heads, and having it so it would look random to someone else. So this is like the descriptive randomness that we talked about earlier, which would pass the Komolgorov complexity test, for example. Uh, another one was guessing which card would appear when selected from a randomly shuffled desk, and then also like listing the hypothetical results of 10 rolls of a dice. And all of these different answers from the participants were poured through, poured over. They compared things such as their age, their background, their race, their language, their gender, their education levels. And all of these different all of these different criteria were used to assess people and try and get an idea of what was uh, some type of systemic learning we could take from this data. It turns out that they all were not acting completely randomly. And the only real correlation that they could find in this data, the rest seemed to have no clear, obvious connection. But the one thing that did was that age seemed to play a pretty key factor determining people's ability to behave randomly. And in fact, it wasn't some kind of decay curve where everyone sort of started out okay, but by the time you hit 70 or 80, it really drops off. That wasn't what they saw at all. What they found was that there was actually a peak. Uh, when you were young, the random, your ability to be random wasn't that good. But at about age 25, on average, there was a peak level of randomness, and then it just declined from then on. So 25 appeared to be the peak level after which you were too stuck in your ways or weren't really sure how to make a good random sequence. And that's kind of fascinating. It sort of makes this golden age period 
for random gener number generation, which is kind of interesting. In fact, it's almost as described by the study co-author Hector Zenel as a, effectively a reverse Turing test for human behavior. Sort of shows the strength of an algorithm and of humans that at age 25, humans are incredibly good at making random data, but over time, it sort of goes down. Now, this is not just a fun little study test to see how random people are. It actually has real-world applications because by having some type of cognitive measure of your brain's ability to come up with complex randomness, what is we know is a task even incredibly difficult for a computer, we can actually use it to measure and analyze cognitive performance and track that over time, in particular for things like neurodegenerative disease where your brain functions will start to change and behave over time. So the authors of this study are actually looking at what we can learn from randomness, randomness tests, and how that may help us get a better understanding of brain health over a lifetime. Randomness is an incredibly difficult task for machines, and more and more we're turning to machines to offer some kind of solution for a lot of the difficult problems we face in our lives, and some of those less difficult but just trivial and time-consuming. And that's really the wonder of startup culture, new apps, new services, and things that rely on big data. The basic premise that you've heard time and time again from everything from Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Uber, and a variety of other services is don't worry too much, give us your data and we'll come up with a better solution for you. And it's not just us, we're just smart people who come up with an algorithm. But once it's made, the product's made, the computer will do all the work for you and you don't have to worry about it. You know, we can use a computer to pour over statistical data sets and find out the location a crime is most likely to occur to target our police resources. We can find out where we should send cabs or Uber drivers, for example, um, in the events of a large event because we can just pour over the data set of previous information and learn things from it. And this is really the idea behind relying on machines to make decisions for us uh, by feeding them lots and lots and lots of data. And that's basically the machine learning approach. And this undermines a whole lot of different apps, services, and programs that are on offer today. And a lot of this stuff is incredibly powerful and useful. But like everything... Once you feed it in information, if that information is being misguided or misrepresented or hiding things in any way, then that can really lead to things falling apart. If you feed something in that's a bit questionable, you may get some questionable results out. And some recent research out of Princeton's University, together with Stanford's Law School Center for the Internet and Society, and in association with researchers from University of Bath, They've been studying what actually goes into our machine learning algorithms and if there's any way that this is capturing a lot of the inherent bias present in a lot of our society, unfortunately. Arvind Narayan and fellow researcher from University of Bath, Alan Kaliskin and Joanna Bryson. And together, these researchers were looking at, well, are machines actually just picking up the inherent biases of the people that are creating them? And the real way we test this is using something called the implicit association test, 
which was developed in the University of Washington in the late 1990s. It basically measures response time in milliseconds by human subjects when asked to pair word concepts displayed on a computer screen together. Shorter response time, the way in which the test works, it goes, ah, okay, well, you obviously have some sort of association between these two concepts. The longer the response time, well, it's obviously something that you aren't associating together. For example, if you see rose and daisy or ant and moth together, you sort of pair those pretty quickly and, you know, tap them away pretty fast. But let's say uh, words that are further apart, well, it, you, it's uh, harder for us to sort of respond as quickly. So what they did is they took this test and they, and they called it GLOVE. Uh, basically, it's their statistical algorithm that they came up with. And what they did is they applied it to the huge data sets, typically what someone might use if they're making their own app. Uh, for example, something large trawls of documents from the World Wide Web, maybe 840 billion different words, like a huge sample of human culture. And a lot of people, when they're building an algorithm or an app or a new service, this is exactly what they do. Get a huge data set and feed it to the algorithm that you made and then see what happens. And the problem was the this sort of method shows that a lot of that data set has some undermining statistical correlations. For example, it was picking up that up. Oh, Parent, wedding, pairing those with female names, and uh, in turn, male names were being associated things like professional and salary. And this is just some of the data that they were finding sort of rising to the top. And what they found is that just simple, simple things were actually being coded with a lot of underlying biases about the particular culture from the data set that they were analyzing. Things along the lines of gender and race, which sort of makes sense because this is something we've known about for a long period of time. In 2004, Marion Bertrand from the University of Chicago and Sandu Mulayathan of Harvard University sent out around 5,000 identical resumes to about 1,300 job advertisements. And all they did each time was change the applicants' names to either be traditionally European-American sounding names or African-American sounding names. And the European-American sounding names were 50% more likely to be offered an interview than the latter. And... This sort of study have had numerous follow-ups. It's one of the reasons actually why HR professionals now like to try and do blind uh, resume or job screening, where they actually don't actually know who the person was. They just read the content and judge them on that and don't have a lot of the inherent biases filtering into them. But the problem is, a lot of those times, that blind screening process is often done by algorithm. And so then you can also end up with some problems being thrown in there too. Another example is uh, if you if you take a machine learning-based translation service, commonly something like a Google Translate or something similar, we take a language which has a gender-neutral third-person pronoun, such as O. Um, if you translate the sentence Ober Doktor, which is a Turkish sentence for uh, or they are a doctor, with the general neutral pronoun translated, it will either translate back to you, uh, he is a doctor, or she is a nurse. And these are kind of just ways that the, the implicit biases can be carried over from the data set that you teach it with. That's not to say that the programs them, themselves are necessarily racist or sexist, but a lot of the data that they're feeding their machines or in the way in which they're structuring things can lead to a whole bunch of systemic problems which just lie hidden beneath the surface that you'd never know until you open up the hood and take a look at the underlying assumptions. So this study from Princeton University together with the University of Bath just goes to show that we need to take a lot of care when we generate new algorithms. We need to make sure we feed it data that isn't capturing any implicit biases on race or gender or other views that are present in our society 
And if we are not going to take those steps to remove those, we need to accept that the algorithms that we make aren't some kind of all-seeing, infallible purpose. They're just us done faster. And so they're going to have all the same issues and complexities that we as humans have. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From the biases present in our machine learning algorithms and apps to how randomness can change over time. This week we talked about the difficulties of random behaviour. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.